Welcome to the Development Policy Centre. In 2015, Papua New Guinea was affected by a series of severe El Niño-induced droughts and frosts. The effect on rural communities was devastating, with food and water shortages, adverse health effects and school and service closures. In this forum, you'll hear five speakers who were closely involved in the assessment of food shortages and the coordination of food distribution. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Hello, good afternoon. Um, thank you all for coming along to this session on PNG drought and famine relief. Uh, my name is Michael Cookson. I work at the Development Policy Center um, and we are hosting the event this afternoon. Um, thank you to Husnia for getting everything set up. Um, we've got three speakers this afternoon. Unfortunately, James Kamengi and Matt Kanua cannot come, um, but we have three excellent speakers uh, who will entertain us for a while with their presentations and inform us, and then we uh, have a question and answer time after that. Um, so we'll start off with Mike Burke, uh, who's probably known to many of you. Um, he's been here for a very long time. He's been working in PNG agriculture for the last 47 years. Um, and he'll give us an overview of the 2015-16 drought and frosts. Um, and then we'll be follow, following that with Brendan's presentation, I think. Uh, and he'll be talking, Brendan is a PhD student here at the ANU, working on uh, the impacts of El Nino in PNG and the uh, famine relief and response efforts. Uh, you can have more to say about that, of course, uh, in a few minutes. Um, and then Sally Lloyd, who uh, grew up in the Western province and will talk to us about some of the effects of uh, drought and famine there uh, and her involvement with uh, the 2015-16 drought. And thank you uh, about James's presentation. Uh, yeah, and so in, in James' absence, Brendan will be presenting the co-authored uh, presentation that they've got. Um, so we'll be getting a presentation uh, that Brendan will be producing or preparing, presenting on behalf of uh, himself and James, um, and I think Matt, uh, Matt Kanua's uh, ideas will be presented to some extent um, in Mike Burke's presentation this afternoon, so he'll be able to at least inform us about some of the uh, presentation that Matt may, may have presented if he had been able to attend today. Um, so without further ado, I'd like to welcome Mike Burke. Thank you. Thanks for that. Yeah. Um, yeah, what I'm going to do is give a bit of an overview. My colleagues are going to dive into um, some of the lot more detail what happened um, on the ground in, in some of the key provinces. So let's just give a bit of a big picture now of what happened with the 15-16 uh, drought and frosts. Just very quickly, um, I'm sure many of you are familiar with this. This is the normal weather uh, air circulation across the Pacific when it hits what's known as a maritime continent, New Guinea, Philippines, East Indonesia. The air rises and the humid air dumps a lot of water. So it's a very wet place. During El Nino, the wind patterns change and they rise in the central Pacific. They drop water on places that are normally dry, the Lion Islands and Kiribati, for example. The air, when it comes across the Western Pacific, it comes down onto the Western Pacific, is then descending and it's dry. And the way I think about it, everything runs away. There's more air pressure, the reefs are exposed because the sea is pushed down, the clouds run away, you get the frost, and the rain runs away. So that's what happens during El Nino. A little bit of, his, a little bit of background here. The drought started in, in April 15 and went through to about November. Slightly different pattern from what happened in 97. In the far south of the country, it went on right until 2016. 
We had very severe frost at the very high altitude, that's above 2,200 metres from um, July and into August 15. The impacts have continued right till a few months ago, particularly at some of the very high altitude locations, people have still been short of food. Then um, I just mentioned down the second last line there, the major droughts. So these are not terribly common. There's six really big droughts in the last 120 years. These really big droughts are not so big. Overall, my sense is, and the data is coming in now to suggest that, this is not as big an event as back in 97, 98. Still very big, impacted a lot of people and caused tremendous um, stress and suffering, but not as big as 97, 98, probably not as big as 1914 either. They're the two really big ones in the last 120 years. Just a few images. A colleague of mine, Rebecca Robinson, took this image here at Barola Village. It's a bit south of Conantu on the Okapa Road. Those of you who know it, you can see it's very dry. Um, the, the sweet potato gardens, are, um, there's nothing much in them. Um, that was in September. Some months later she took it. You can see it's very green and you can see the people are starting to form new gardens. So just a couple of typical images. Um, the biggest single impact that had the impact on the, by far the greatest number of people is shortage of water. Even in places where food was not scarce, New Ireland and different places like that, um, people were short of water. And they were, some places were just inconvenient. You know, you had to get in your truck, drive down to that spring and, you know, cost diesel and time, fill up the canisters and take them back home. But for many people, it put an additional burden, particularly on women and on, and on girls, occasionally young boys, but mostly women and girls who have to carry the water. The water is also contaminated. If it's not really contaminated, it's certainly contaminated in people's minds, particularly getting water from a larger stream. They're very uncomfortable about that. Um, that closed a lot of schools. In the second half of 2015, a lot of schools in Papua New Guinea were closed part-time. Many were closed full-time. So it had a huge impact. Hundreds of thousands of children did not complete the school year in 2015. It was really quite a big impact. Plus, there was an increase in uh, skin and internal diseases. Um, as far as the food shortages go, there, there are four what I call ecological zones. The first is where the frost hit, the very high altitude, that's above 2,200 metres, particularly Kandep district, which is up in Anger, but adjacent parts of Heller, Western Highlands and Southern Highlands. So that's the first ecological zone, the very high altitude. The second one is inland Lowland Western Province. Sally is going to talk about that now, um, James and uh, Brendan's the final presentation today will be about the very high altitude, um, particularly in the nomad Mogulu area, but also down at Moorhead. Moorhead's basically where Indonesia, Papua New Guinea and Queensland all meet. The third one is lots and lots of little obscure places, most places that most people, even in Papua New Guinea, have never heard of. They're obscure places where there's an airstrip and a day's walk from anywhere and where people don't have money and they were hit very hard. And then finally, 31 small islands in Milne Bay province and later on, as we go into 2016, up on the mainland, what they call the north coast of Milne Bay. So these are those locations. This is a map that I did with some colleagues, Brian Allen and Michael Lowe. This is, uh, sorry, the, the purple here is what we call Category 5 in Papua New Guinea, where people are really starving. Category 4, where they're doing it very tough and there's very little food in the garden. So they're the two colours to look for, the purple and the red. Um, this data, all of our data, it's always a bit rough. None of this is perfect. Um, for whatever source, it's always, you know, it's somewhat less than perfect. This is the very high altitude up here in Kandep um, and, and spilling over into uh, Heller and Southern Highlands. That's the first ecological zone. And there's about 180,000 people from memory up there that did it very tough. The second one is inland lowland western, 
Um, Sally will talking about the area up here, Nomad Mogaloo in particular. It's the whole LLG, the whole Nomad LLG. Then more heads down there. That's the Australian border there. That's the Indonesian border. So it's this corner here in particular. The third one is these lots of these little obscure places, uh, Telefoman, Oxartman, the Havis speaking area, um, the western part of um, uh, Lake Copiago and what have you, in, in, in Heller province, where Gulf, Eastern Highlands and Moribi meet, the corner of those three provinces. The southern part of Chimbu, things were tough, although not quite as bad as that perhaps. And then that's the third zone. And, and other places like up here, up, up on the Huon Peninsula, where it was a... When we did this map in December, we didn't know what was happening, and even we didn't pick it up later. Neither my own work I did with my colleagues, nor the um, World Food Programme picked it up. That fell through the, through the cracks. And then finally, it's these 31 islands down Milne Bay, and later on, as we go into 2016, these grasslands up here dried out. So they were the four areas where, where, where things were really bad, four ecological zones. A similar pattern to 1997. Let me step back a bit. In 1997, my colleague Bryant Allen and I drew up, I think it was a list of eight things that we predicted. I, th I can't remember whether we got eight out of eight wrong or seven out of eight wrong. But we said, for example, if you're on limestone, it'll be worse. That wasn't important. We said, if you have sago, you'll be okay. You can always live on sago. We knew that from the 72 drought, 79, 82, that was okay. In 97, it was so severe, the water dried up. So our predictions were wrong. Come 2000, most of our predictions were wrong because it was such a big event. The last time it was as big as that was probably 1914. Come, 19, come 2015, I and other colleagues like Matt Cannow, we had the experience of 97 and our predictions were pretty right. We got most of it right. It wasn't identical, but we had a much better idea of what was happening. Just to distract myself for a minute, that's why it's so important to capture this stuff, get it on the web, get it hard copy, so in 20 years' time or 15 years' time, there's a record. I don't want to be doing this again. I won't be around. But, and Matt Cannow and others won't be around, but... You need to capture this so people can go back to it. It's really important. Okay, number of people short of food. Our estimate by the end of 2015, category four and five was 800,000 people, a bit under a fraction. In fact, that's about 12% of the rural population. Um, a lot more people were somewhat short of food, a couple of million people, and that's the figure that's often quoted in Papua New Guinea. But even by the middle of, of last year, there's still about 300,000 people still very short. And even at the beginning of 2017, we're still coming across people, particularly at the high altitude, because after the drought there was too much rain and the food supply has not returned to normal in parts of Kandap, even up to a few months ago. Just comparing that with 18 years ago, Back in, 90, back in 97, 98, there was more people, 1.2 million people, but that was actually almost 40%, 39% to be precise of the rural population then. Now it's about 12%, according to our best estimate. All this data is, you know, it's a little bit rough. We don't even know the exact population of Papua New Guinea anymore. We, we knew it in 2000. We don't know it now. The data is pretty bad. Back in 97, 98, there was a massive increase in rice. Most of it was bought by mum and dad in the village. It was bought by ordinary people. It was sometimes bought by urban people who gave it to the rural one talks. 82% of the extra rice was bought by ordinary people. Retail is what True Kai calls it. Australia got the credit. Aussie got the credit. The military got the credit. Australia bought 4.5%. Papua New Guinea government bought 9.5% and bits and bobs of 4%. But there was a massive increase in rice. In 15-16, there was not a big increase in rice. Again, that says to me it wasn't so severe. True Kai say to me now, well, the reason people didn't buy the rice, not, not a lot of extra rice, because the government didn't buy it, that does not make sense to me, because back in 97, the government, PNG and Australia, between them only bought about 
Most of the extra rice is bought by ordinary people. So this is, this is rice imports and P&G over the last half century. Classical S-shaped curve, it goes along, it rises up very rapidly, and then it goes flat. Now, when the economy is sad, people are consuming about 26 kilograms of rice per person. When it's going well, they consume about 34. And that's the range over the last 30, 40 years, in fact, between about 26 and, 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 um, and, and 34 kilos per person. Depends on the economy. The urban people don't change their behaviour much, but the highlanders in particular, but other people in the lowlands, rural people, buy more rice. See the bumps here? That's the 72 drought. That's when the prices were high, boom, bing, boom, and coffee prices, and that's the 97 drought. Look at the big jump in 97. We're not, that's 2015, that's 16. We're not seeing a big jump now. Even allowing for some errors in the data and, in, in, of rice consumption and certainly errors in, in the population estimates, um, I don't think we're seeing the same thing. Um, here's just a couple of images. This is what happens when the frost hits. Um, this is up at the Calgill Valley, high altitude, up over about 2,100 metres from memory, 2,200. You can see the sweet potato is all dead, gone. So are the potatoes. There's not a huge amount of potatoes. The cow-cow goes, the potatoes go. So does the, the, um, the sugar cane. The only thing that survives, a little bit of karuka, high altitude, panda, dandanus, cabbages, and the um, Australian species of, um, of eucalypt. Here's another image that Sally took. This is at Mogaloo Market. Matt Cannell and I surveyed six markets in Western Province in 2013 and 14, and the markets are bustling. They're full of food. You can see there's nothing in the market because there's no food, and Sally will talk about that soon. What other impacts? Well, um, an increase in, in, in disease, malnutrition, malaria. You get more malaria during a drought because the streams stop flowing and the insects build up. You get malaria going to the lower valleys of the highlands where adults do not have immunity because they haven't had malaria as a child and you get adults dying. That often leads to sorcery accusations. People are dying of diseases that people can't recognise. Bushfires, there's some, some bushfires, no deaths this time, there's a few deaths back in 97. In parts of the highlands, particularly near the highway now, sale of domestic food is really important. A little anecdote. Uh, myself and some of my colleagues have been here, three more, four of us work for our sins. We worked for some years on the LNG project. At the height of it, there's 10,000 of us in the Highlands, 10,000 near Moresby. Those 10,000 of us who worked in the Highlands and in Western Province, all of our vegetables came from the Western Highlands. They were sourced in the Highlands, came to Hagen. That's really booming, doing well. But in the drought, that pretty much dried out, pretty much dried up. Some people had some onions, which is a fairly tough crop, but most of the, the domestic food sales in the Highlands stopped. The people couldn't, you couldn't navigate up the Fly River. That had an impact on, on Kiunga, on Tabubal, um, but also on Telefoman up, up in the mountains. The Octeti Mine was closed for a few months and Surinumu Dam was low with water, although, again, not as bad as what happened in 97. An image, one of Matt's images from when Matt Kanawa did, did an assessment with the um, United Church back in September, and you can see that the, um, much of the landscape's burned out. What that does to people, apart from losing houses and possessions, it delays recovery because they lose the grass for the thatch and the, the young, thin regrowth that they'd use to build the houses. So people, people lose, um, it slows down people getting back. And you'll see, I think, some of the images later um, show some of that, yeah. Um, one of Sally's images, and Sally will talk to that, but just to make the point, and Sally will talk to this, but a lot of kids are very malnourished. This little kid, 
kids recovered and uh, Sally's got an image of that later. But he came into the clinic at Mogaloo, um, fainting, going in and out of consciousness and Sally and her Papua New Guinea colleagues managed to get him back to health. Large volumes of food aid were given in Western Province. The Octeti Development Foundation really stepped up to the mark. They did a superb job. They were supported by Digicel. They put up a million kina, about 300,000 US. World Food Program were very engaged. They didn't buy the food, but they did bought some at the end. Um, Australian DFAT and New Zealand government helped a little bit down the south of the <coughs> province, but they helped with transport. Australia, to a lesser degree, New Zealand helped with transport, but the food was bought by the Octeti Development Foundation. They really did a superb job. Serious amount of food was also purchased for four local level government areas up in Anger and Hella, and that was again UN money, World Food Program managed it, and CARE did much of the distribution. And then in Milne Bay province, again it was UN with World Food doing it. The province in Milne Bay had their act together very well. There was a big cyclone in Milne Bay in 2014. They had some money left over. So come October 15, the, the, the provincial staff, um, um, Steve Tabessa and his colleagues, went round the province. They got a lot of information. They assembled it and they distributed food. They did it very competently, but then they'd used up the money they had left over from the, the cyclone, and that's when World Food came in and did more distribution. But in Milne Bay, they did a, did a, did a, um, did a very good job. Um, really very impressive. And later on, all they really needed was money and a bit of technical help. Small volumes were given out by the government of Papua New Guinea, not very big volumes at all, to speak plainly. Members of the parliament were allowed to use what's known DSIP, there's other words for it, but I think the official term is District Service Improvement Fund, but other words would use in less polite company. Um, Basically, they were allowed to divert it. Some of them did divert it, but basically everyone pretty much had their eye in 2017 on the election. The difference between this drought and last time round, last time was just after an election and people were already talking about 2002, they're thinking it's four and three quarter years ahead, but now people are looking into the 2017 election. A lot of money was diverted. Some of the provincial administrations, particularly Anger, but also in Milne Bay, as I just mentioned, they, they fed people. Some of the churches, the Catholic Church through Caritas, supported by Caritas Australia and New Zealand, uh, the Catholic Church in Papua New Guinea supported particularly disabled people. They focused on disabled people. United Church had smaller amounts of money supported by Uniting World. And some of the NGOs um, did some small volumes, um, particularly two of the NGOs in the Highlands with support from um, the European Union. Small amounts of money, 600,000 um, euros at one stage there. Most of these sums are pretty small, a million or two dollars, a couple of million keener at the most. The UN money was 13 million US dollars, so larger. Some lessons for the future. Most people helped themselves. The people who survived, who did okay, they did it tough, but it was the ordinary people. It was mum and dad. It was in the village. The people who had the greatest needs and who, who could not help themselves were in the remote areas. So when those places I talk about, it's not the language they speak, it's not the colour of their skin, it's not whether they live on Sago or anything, or their culture. The common denominator is remoteness, it's poverty. People in Papua New Guinea deny poverty exists, but it's lack of income, it's lack of political power, it's lack of educated people. The most educated person might be a pastor or, or a, um, a health worker. In, in the better built-up areas, the most educated person is an assistant secretary and that person will divert resources back home. So in those remote areas, people do it tough. 
If there's one single lesson, is that development matters. What Australia did in the 50s, the 60s and the 70s, and what Papua New Guinea did up to the mid-80s, perhaps up to about 1990, and what village people have continued to do themselves, is to develop the country, and development matters. Where you've got development, people bought their way out of the trouble. This is not to deny they did it very tough, and there's a lot of illness and a lot of other bad things happened, but it was in these really remote areas where there's lack of development, and that's where, um, that's where things are really bad. James's presentation, our colleague James Kamengi, will talk about some of the things that he picked up in the field. So when we say really bad, let me, let me not mince words. We have men giving away one of their daughters essentially to be raped by men in the Western Highlands who have money in exchange for food. We have women prostituting themselves. So let's not play with words. When we talk about doing it tough, this is tough. You know, these are people starving. Men making decisions. I can save the wife and the five kids if, that, if the 18-year-old girl goes to Hagen for three months. The other thing is press coverage matters. There's two turning points in turning this round in getting the government of Papua New Guinea to acknowledge a problem and getting things to happen. The first turning point is Sally Lloyd being in the press. I've been beating my head against this for six months, seven months, getting nowhere. Sally's in the press. She's the front page of the National. Malam Nalu interviews her. I introduced her to Malam, who's a mate of mine. He interviews Sally. He was so taken back by her image, he says, I'm going to get the front page on Wednesday. I'm going to get a weekend spread at the weekend. He did that. You could not believe the difference people were talking to before that press thing and afterwards. Afterwards, hey, this is serious. We're going to get serious now. I'd met with an American bloke who eventually donated $3 million US dollars from the US government. We read him beforehand, oh, yeah, had a good workout at the gym this morning. What, how, how good is the coffee here? Afterwards, it was very, very serious. The whole tone changed dramatically after the press coverage that Sally had. The other key point, turning point, was the United Nations, led by Roy Trevetti and supported by myself and some of his staff, Gerard Nung, getting the government of Papua New Guinea to agree to go out and get international aid. But the press mattered, just like it did in 97. Bryant, you'd remember what happened when the Sydney Morning Herald said, people are starving and, 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 and we're doing nothing about it. That's when we got the call, come and do something about it been cruising up to them. A few more lessons. With the modern technology, particularly the telephones, the email, and to some degree Facebook, you can really do a lot of assessments. With my colleagues, I gathered a huge amount of information, and Brian Allen and Mike Lowe helped me bring it together, and we put it all together. That was all done remotely. You can do that from Bungendore, you can do it from Port Moresby. You don't have to go to the bush. You need to go to the bush to really confirm what's happening when things are really tough and you're not sure, but you can zoom in, and that's what we did this time. That can be done by a whole group of Papua New Guineans. At the national level, you wouldn't want to rave about the competency. It was pretty ordinary, generally speaking, at the national level. But when you got to the provincial level, even in provinces that don't run very well, such as Western Province, things were done a lot better. Here's an example. In the 2000 census in Nomad LLG, there's 10,000, so many hundred people. In the 2011 census, there's said to be 4,000. That's clearly rubbish. It's bullshit. It's not. It hasn't gone down. So I ignore that. I projected that the population would be 16,200 with a growth rate over 18 years. The provincial pe people went out and did their own thing and they said it was actually 18,000, which is a better figure. The point is that 16 or 18,000 are in the ballpark, 4,000 your way out of it. Provincial people, both in doing assessments, doing, assessment, uh, doing census and, and with food distribution, with some help, even in provinces that don't function very well, like Western, they did a good job, or Anger. In provinces that function well, such as Milne Bay, they did a better job. But at the local level, things often work better. Finally, after, after the drought, the key thing is that you need certain crops. You don't need lots of things. You need maize, corn in particular. 
You can eat that 80 to 100, 110 days after you plant it, depending on altitude. When people do it really tough, when things are really bad, is actually after the rain. In this case, it starts in December 15, it's January, February, March 16. It was the same back in 97, 98. The worst things that happened, the really bad things, happened in the beginning of 98 after the rain came. If you've got maize, you can start to have carbohydrate, carbohydrate food within about 100 days, give or take. Sweet potato is important, it's the most important food in the country, and so is potato above 2,000 metres and pumpkin to some degree. The Australian government gave a million US dollars to the National Agricultural Research Institute. They said thank you very much and spent the money. But the people on the ground, the NGOs, the churches, the provinces that were trying to get um, um, planting material, they couldn't get it. So the effect of the drought went on a lot longer. So planting material of a few key crops matters. MTUSL. Thank you. That's all. Thanks for coming. Um, Mike mentioned I'm a PhD student, but all of this is from uh, work that we've done on the Church Partnership Program, uh, El Nino Response. <clears throat> so I've been avoiding the PhD for some time. Um, but this is an attempt to put something together that may turn into a PhD. Um, so just very briefly, I've probably spent the last 18 months sort of engaged um, on the drought, about six months of which was in Port Moresby doing a number of uh, sort of field trips and assessments into uh, remote places, working closely with NGOs such as um, CARE and Oxfam and um, the UN. So what I'm trying to do is pull together something uh, about the humanitarian response. And there's obviously too much to even touch this subject in sort of 10 minutes. But what I'm trying to do is just have a look at collaboration and communication and sort of some of the blockages. So that's sort of where our, my research is hopefully going to lead. But there's some people in the room from the UN and churches and NGOs who, um, who could say a lot more about this than I could. Um, so I'm going to talk about the flow of information during the El Nino, who were the main actors, and how was information accessed and disseminated. And so I'm trying to look at sort of level, what I'm calling levels, so the local, the regional or you know, sub-national, provincial level, the national and the international level, and how information um, sort of flows through this network. So here's a, uh, a messy list of um, some of the actors. Uh, broken into sort of UN agencies, donors, PNG government, NGOs, private sector, uh, subnational, uh, and other actors. Um, I won't read through them all. Um, so I, I could have done this a few ways. There's another way I could have done this to show sort of 120 or so actors that um, I have on a big spreadsheet. And another way would be to show a much shorter list of uh, actors that actually had an impact. So I won't say more than that, but you can, um, reading between the lines, this could be a much shorter list as well. So at the village level, uh, it would come to no as no surprise to people that have worked in PNG that um, local groups uh, ask for support from ward councillors, MPs, and others. Sort of, it's quite hierarchical without sort of bypassing that. There are a lot of Facebook groups um, which uh, which got a lot of good information out early uh, when when there was nothing through the formal media. Uh, ward councillors provide reports to provincial disaster coordinators. Um, and as you'd imagine, there's limited support comes from provinces. There's a few exceptions to this. Uh, 
Milne Bay and Morobe Province are probably the main exceptions that I'm aware of, where uh, where the provincial governments did uh, have some sort of response. Um, but and obviously PNG is a very diverse place, but I think you, we can we can sort of uh, categorically say that across the board this was the case at the village level. Um, at the provincial level, there were many reports received from wards, um, limited capacity to do assessments or provide any support, and some provincial disaster coordinators sought support from the National Disaster Centre or international actors. Um, again, in Morobe and Milne Bay, there was sort of throughout the drought and we're trying to access information and um, what we didn't realise until later, I, I did some... Um, some trips and there's sort of filing cabinets full of uh, reports that have come in from ward councillors. So there's actually a lot of very detailed, uh, credible um, information at the local level that really it's, it's very hard to get that to a national or, or an international level. So the information is there in provinces. That's, I think, a key message. So at the national level, uh, the National Disaster Centre released assessment uh, reports that they conducted in October 2015. This is... Um, sort of six months after the drought had started. Um, the ANU, what I'm calling the ANU food needs map uh, that Mike uh, showed earlier was released in December 2015. Shortly after a World Food Program telephone survey was released, which largely corroborated, um, not corroborated, but supported the, the findings of that map. Um, a key mechanism was the bi-monthly disaster management team meetings and food security cluster meetings that happened in Port Moresby. And this was a way to feed in information uh, that came in through NGOs and, um, and churches and others. Uh, and the church partnership program supported the response of the mainline churches. Obviously, that's a lot more happened at the national level, but for the sake of um, for sort of capturing um, some of the key um, events. Uh, at the international level, this is a work in progress, but, um, but I think the message is important that operational decisions come from regional office, offices in, for example, Bangkok with the UN, UN agencies, particularly with the World Food Programme. Head offices have a lot to do, as you, you would know very well, um, with donor decisions, so Canberra or Washington or Tokyo or Brussels. Um, and the UN uh, Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs played a very uh, large but quiet role um, out of their Bangkok office to get the, uh, the UN SURF funding, which is basically the, the largest pot of money that... Um, Mike was talking about it throughout the highlands uh, for the food distribution. So this is just to just to give a sense that a lot more happens outside the country than than even I think those of us um, with front row seats were probably aware of. So I just want to touch on a couple of individual um, actors because this is something that um, a big sort of complaint or frustration um, throughout the response was the difficulty getting information on the ground. And so there are key people like James who who operates at the local level. He's a, he's a church man. Um, he's based in Tari. He has um, a lot of private sector experience. He does sort of peace building initiatives, and um, which for anyone who uh, knows Hella is a big deal. And so he's able to sort of run around the country and get um, credible um, information on sort of number of affected people, um, number of disabled people, expecting mothers. So he, he can get this data at a local level, but he can also operate um, at... You know, he ended up being contracted by CARE to support their food distribution. He works with the media. So these are really key people, I think, um, in Papua New Guinea where, where getting to the local level, is it's, it's a costly exercise to get out. I mean, as Mike said, a lot of it can now be done remotely and should be done remotely, but um, people are spending a lot of money on plane trips and per diems to get out and, um, and do these assessments. 
and um, Sally Lloyd again. Um, I just thought it was important to show show this. This is this really was a pivotal uh, moment in trying to get um, some awareness, both both nationally and internationally. Um, so again, I mean, Sally Sally started. Uh, I mean, Sally will explain it better, but effectively as a volunteer with uh, the people she grew up with and who she knows, and um, through her efforts to raise money, which is which is a hard thing to do, but then getting into the newspaper, uh, really shifting the momentum. And Sally was later um, worked uh, for the World Food Program as well. And um, I won't go through the map again, but also just to highlight the role played by um, Mike, uh, Brian Allen, Michael Lowe and others in Can <coughs> Canberra, largely unpaid uh, using uh, email, Facebook, uh, telephones, and I'm sure Mike's still recovering from the phone bill. But to get all this information, to plug this in from Canberra, so a lot can actually be done remotely by people who know the country and, and who, who uh, have the passion for it. So I'll just touch briefly on the three, um, the three main areas uh, that are broadly affected by the drought. So in the high altitude Anger uh, and Heller provinces, this is what I'll uh, talk about again um, on James and my behalf. So the United uh, Church Food Needs Assessment was done in September 2015 followed by another uh, assessment in March 2016. So that was six months with largely no action. So the first assessment showed um, there was a grave need for food, uh, food relief and, and a lot of other things, um, such as health and um, wash um, interventions. Six months later, another assessment was done because it was sort of, it was seen as, well, we, we need something more up to date and we need, if we're gonna go and try and chase some money. The World Food Program um, MVAM, which is the Mobile Vulnerability uh, Analysis Mapping um, Assessment, uh, corroborated these findings shortly after. Uh, these were telephone surveys done uh, based from Port Moresby. Uh, food aid didn't commence till June 2016, so that's over a year since the start of the drought. R the rain had actually started, uh, what, November, so over six months prior uh, to food aid actually commencing. The UN Central Emergency Response Fund um, uh, is what, what funded this, uh, and 144,000 people received food aid. And this is probably a picture that not many people get to see in Australia or anywhere, is just uh, what food distribution looks like um, up in the high altitude areas. So uh, I'll just talk briefly. Sally will go into detail in Western Province, but the um, food aid commenced in April 2016, and uh, the South and Middle Fly, as Mike said, was uh, supported by DFAT. North Fly was uh, done by the World Food Program, and the Rice was um, funded by the Octeti Development Foundation. Um, and just to make a point, that the Church Partnership Program did a number of assessments and um, supported the coordination for DFAT during this time. Uh, so in Milne Bay province, uh, which, as Mike said, the, the government uh, did quite a lot on its own, and um, which was both good and bad. It was good that they'd done such a good job, but uh, in some ways I think um, a lot of people sort of dropped the ball and thought, well, they've got it under control, and, um, and it turned out they, they didn't, which is not, not um, necessarily an indictment on their response. But uh, So they did an assessment um, in November and then food distribution from October uh, to January. Um, and then the World Food Program um, food aid response started in August 2016, so that's even later than in the Highlands, to 73,000 people. Um, 
And as I mentioned before, there's a lot of um, data. Once you go down and, and, and see them, you realize that there's a provincial government there that's really overwhelmed with information. And, um, you know, they haven't even, it's, this is all hard copy stuff. So they don't have the capacity even to sort of scan it and email it off to someone. So it's, well, they may have the capacity, but not the inclination. But, you know, there's a lot of information there. So I suppose that's a bright spot for um, that there is a lot of competent, um, passionate people at the ward level who are looking to get involved and a huge uh, barrier gap, uh, information gap. So uh, just a few observations, not conclusions, um, is clearly the response was far too slow. Um, there's, there's this um, really big gap, which um, is, is quite astounding. There's a lot of very passionate people within the UN, NGOs, churches at the national level who want to help, and they don't know where to begin. And then people at the village level saying, well, we're here, we've got the information, and there's just something not uh, marrying up there. And there's, there's reasons for that with telecommunications and logistics and things. Um, so there's this common sort of mantra of it's hard to get on the ground information. Um, and just something I've noticed is there's also a distrust of local information. So you'll hear people say, well, what's, what's happening on the ground? We, we want more information. And then when they receive it via someone who doesn't sort of look like them or doesn't talk like them um, or can't do a report that sort of um, talks about beneficiary numbers and all of that, then it's sort of like, oh, well, we, we need to verify that. So there's, so it's not a distrust necessarily that people are lying. It's a distrust of the format uh, that it comes in. Uh, the closure of the, um, the OCHA office in 2015 in Port Moresby, so this is the UN office for the coordination of humanitarian affairs, uh, this caused a huge um, um, problem, I think, for the UN system. Um, I think they pulled it together extremely well with um, some good leadership in Port Moresby, but this was, um, uh, ordinarily, th this would be the agency that would um, coordinate the response. And then lack of seed availability. Uh, there were no seeds in the country. Um, it's beautiful soil and a lot of rain, uh, in the highlands especially, and no seeds to plant, so there was no food. So just very briefly on a couple of the learning lesson, uh, lesson learning mechanisms. Um, there's the, the National Disaster Centre post-drought rapid assessment, which was completed. There's a surf after action review. There's a food needs assessment manual, which uh, we've uh, written and we'll, we can hand out a couple of copies. Um, Care International has recently done a lessons learned workshop for the Highlands. And again, um, there's some folk here from Care and there's a couple of hard copies. Um, and then there's the National El Nino Preparedness uh, Meeting, which was recently held. This is more of a preparedness meeting. There are a couple of other things, but um, as Mike said, we need something much bigger to pull all of this together. Um, but th there's a couple of things. And M Tassol. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for coming along to, to um, hear what observations we've made and the drought in PNG. Um, my name's Sally Lloyd, and I'm actually, guess I could be counted as a Papua New Guinean because I grew up in the village in Papua New Guinea. So I'm just wanting to present mainly a few pictures to give you an idea of what we saw on the ground out in the villages in Papua New Guinea. 
Uh, I went to Papua New Guinea in September 2015 as a normal visit and was quite astounded, and this image was taken at that time actually. Um, the ground was dry and the food was not growing, so uh, I guess that's where we start. The area that I was in in Western Province is very remote, and that's something that we've seen with a lot of the people who have no access to food. Uh, they, they poor, they do not have money, they do not have transport links, and they're the ones that we often see. Um, and the people in the village had done their reports to their ward councillors, and they'd gone to Kiyunga, and that's where it all stopped. So they asked me to be a spokesperson for them, and that's when I got in touch with Mike Burke, and we started a conversation about what we could do to help. But classically saw people who had nothing but sago to eat and sometimes only enough sago to have a meal every second or third day. That's all they had to eat, nothing else. These are some of the images that I took uh, before going down to uh, Port Moresby to meet with Mike. We decided that the best course of action, I'd started a Facebook page, but let's try and take it further. Um, just briefly... This little boy, as Mike said, came into the clinic unconscious and we saw a lot of people like that. The lady in the middle has just walked two days in labour to give birth to twins and that is her small son on the far right-hand side. Uh, so this is the sort of condition that we saw people in uh, in January of 2016. The lady in the middle who gave birth to twins, unfortunately later one of the twins died. Um, Further situation, a lot of pests in the food, uh, no food in the market. Even if you had any money, there's nothing to buy. So even the health workers and teachers were badly affected. And um, typically villages, this is three, three generations of a family, um, from really strong people, their, their whole uh, job there is farming. And, uh, you know, they were clearly suffering from the effects of the drought. In mid-February, uh, sorry, we went, we went to the media and the response was overwhelming. Uh, at, the, at the National Disaster Centre, the response before looking at the photographs was, we're here to wind things up. And after looking at the photographs and the evidence that we showed, they said, OK, obviously we've still got a long way to go. Um, the government had some supplies of food in Mount Hagen, which they decided were probably not needed, so they would just disperse them out in the uh, town. And we um, managed, with some difficulty, to they were flying the food across the top of the people who were really starving to a, another town, Kiunga. And um, so we managed to get some of the pilots, with a little bit of coercion, to drop some of the food in directly to airstrips. So that was the first they got, but it was 200 grams of rice per person at a very limited number of locations, which is obviously not enough. It's enough for a day, and that's all. Uh, from March 2016 onwards, uh, World Food Programme, with the help of Digicel Foundation and Octedi Development Foundation, uh, started to bring rice into the people in the area. That's another big story in itself, but we, we did in the end, um, some people received three deliveries of rice. All of the work was done by local volunteers. We didn't have a team of people to do it. Um, a lot of coordination and planning went into it, but in the end, the local churches and the local people did all of the work. They presented all of their information, their population statistics uh, to, to us, and uh, we went out of Kiunga, flying around to all these little airstrips. In the end, we did just under 600 flights in both small and medium-sized planes, about 1,000 kilograms at a time. <laughs> 
and uh, we ended up delivering around 845,000 kilograms of food to some of these really remote places. Uh, as I said, uh, Octeti Development Foundation, Digicel Foundation started, started us off, and then Food for Peace, um, World Food Program, and, and others were really involved in the whole exercise. This is just a couple of uh, pictures to show you a distribution, as uh, Brendan did. Um, it was about sitting on the ground in little villages or at the side of little airstrips. People would walk in from their villages. It might take them five hours, six hours. Some people had to walk two days. They'd come to the distribution point to collect their food and then they'd walk back. Just to give you an idea of uh, the you know, local church and community, community participation, they really took it on board. We had no disturbances, no problems, uh, no fighting, no trouble and no stolen food. Again, just some of the distributions that happened. This one, for example, at Debapari. So we'd send in just, uh, food aid, they would store it, have their name list ready, and then we'd go in and do a mass distribution to all of the people in one whole area. The people in the area also noted that some uh, lowland people in Hella and Southern Highlands province border regions who were technically not uh, within Western province and therefore not entitled to the Octeti Development Foundation rice, um, that they needed help and they asked us to extend and so we did extend over into those areas of Southern Highlands and Hella. Did a lot of training of... Um, local people because there was no funding for um, getting a team together and it was a really great opportunity to train some of the PNG national uh, workers who were helping us in really good logistics and uh, planning programs, dealing with pilots and, and trying to change the program around all the time. This is that little boy, Olomo, who um, we showed you at the beginning. So just I just wanted to show you the positive side of things, you know, that... that um, there is some good news stories. So this was him last month in, uh, in Papua New Guinea, Mogalu. He survived and he's doing well and he's healthy. Just to show that it makes a difference. This is Margaret Hagelbai on the far right just last week. Uh, she came in to see me. And uh, again, another good news story. So, you know, it's, I think it's important sometimes to see the face of what you're doing, you know, to see that it actually does matter. And these ones, not just statistics, but people, again, who really matter. Um, all people I know, all friends, and all ones who didn't make it. Ian Middleton, at the end of... He's the uh, CEO of OTDF. He wrote uh, a letter just thanking uh, all of the agencies involved, all the people involved, and he wrote this. I would, I would, however, like to take a moment to reflect on those that paid the ultimate sacrifice during this terrible natural disaster. Your families have our deepest sympathies and I hope that the lessons learned will enable an earlier response in future. The will to help from so many has been overwhelming. Thank you. As we were doing the drought relief, one of the volunteers who was helping me with the drought relief got the phone call to say that his mother-in-law had passed away, and this is her. So this photo was taken of her just uh, last year, but uh, wonderful people like that, just our response can make such a, such a big difference, and so um, I thought it was important to put that story up as well. And 
Same for me, MTAS all, end of our distributions. Okay, thank you. Sorry, I'm back again because James couldn't make it. Thanks. Uh, okay, so I'll just talk a little bit about the um, impacts in Hella and Anger province uh, specifically. This is um, my colleague James was, uh, it would be great if he was here. He's a Atari man and he can speak with a lot of um, authority about how what was going on in the communities isn't normal. So if I tell you it's, it doesn't quite, you know, it's obviously not normal for me, but as a local man for him to say it, um, yeah, it's quite powerful. So um, the first few photos are um, James's photos and then the, the last few are, are my photos. So the frost, uh, sorry, the drought started in April, 2015. Frost destroyed gardens um, July and August, and then the rain started in November. So that's, that's actually not a very, very long uh, dry spell, but um, when the rains come, it doesn't necessarily mean there's any food. Um, so it was until late 2016, uh, food shortages persisted. So we're talking about 18 months of food shortages. Um, 140,000 people is the best uh, estimate of people short of food. I'll show a few photos from, um, from the uh, assessment in September 2015 that James was involved in, and then some photos uh, of the assessment we did together in March 2016. Uh, so people living with disabilities, there are no records in either province for who has disabilities and who doesn't. Uh, when there's very small food distributions done, um, people with disabilities don't get any more or any less. Um, so they're left behind as women and children often are. And they're also often literally left behind if people migrate, which, um, which people do up in these areas. Uh, so there's no aids for mobility um, at all. And, um, and it's also very cold uh, in these areas. So if you're sitting around all day in the cold, it's not very good. Um, James has managed to secure a couple of wheelchairs, but this is quite recent. Um, I don't have a pointer, but the... Um, it's on here, is it? How do I use that? Oh, that's fancy. Okay, so um, this lady on the right-hand side and second from the left are... Um, in their early 30s. Neither of them can walk. Um, and this is um, one, of, one of the ladies on the left-hand side. This was uh, photos taken from um, September 2015, and James asked her to show him how does she get to church, uh, which is the main place she needs to get to, and so she, she crawls. Um, and if you can imagine, there's food shortages, and it's also very cold. Um, it's not very nice. And their mother there, second from the right, um, she actually passed away between um, September 2015 and when I was there in March 2016. I spent some time with them both, um, and yeah, they they sit inside all day, so it's not it's not very nice. This is a um, a victim from a bushfire. She was uh, trying to get possessions from her house. Um, there were a lot of bushfires um, uh, throughout the dry season. So the impact on women and uh, mothers, as you would expect, is great. Uh, so a mother of five uh, left, the, 
the father and kids at home while she swam across the river to get rice from relatives. And on her way back with rice strapped to um, her head, she, um, she drowned and was washed away. And this is, um, this is some men trying to retrieve her body. So you'll often hear people say, oh, well, it's, it's violent anyway in these areas. Um, but this, uh, uh, this uh, woman's son died while the husband was away and he came back and um, tried to kill her with a, a bush knife and she ended up with her hand cut off. So violence does happen in these areas, but um, the impact of uh, the drought, the food shortages and the impact on health um, causes an increase in violence as well. And this is a, a very common story. Uh, often not spoke about is the impact on men. Um, a lot of the men I talked to really were under a lot of stress from not being able to provide for their families. Um, they couldn't protect their wives and their daughters or their sons. Uh, these are examples of men whose uh, wives actually left them. So it, it happens both ways. And I mean, my best guess is that um, her family or is closer by, or they've got a bit more money, so I mean, so she can leave. So I mean, it's desperate stuff. These are people not not leaving for a better life. They're leaving um, because they're hungry. Uh, some more stories: a, a, a mother tried to kill herself uh, after a house burnt down. There's a lot of houses burnt down, and very few of them uh, were rebuilt. And we heard stories of prostitution in exchange for bags of rice um, or or money, but more often bags of rice. And um, this was a, I wasn't um, here for this one, but James was talking to a community about where they got their water. They said, oh, it's fine, we've got water. And then he found out what they were drinking and it, it looks pretty bad. So the next few photos I'm gonna show you are from a school visit that uh, James and I did uh, in March of 2016. So we'd been in Kandep and we'd, um, then we went over into the Heller side, into Panduaga, and we were getting the same stories from the same group of men, and it was quite hard to talk to women and quite hard to talk to some of the quieter men. Um, and James and I had had a chat, and we'd known that each other used to be primary school teachers, so we, um, we concocted an idea to try and go and talk to the kids directly. So we, um, James was already, uh, James works for the United Church. We were there with um, the pastor, so we spoke to the school teacher and went in and we thought, let's talk to the kids about, um, you know, what are they eating and what, what, what's it like? You know, kids aren't going to lie in this situation. So, uh, but what started as sort of a, a chat sort of got serious pretty quickly as we realised this, this is a photo of um, half of the kids we talked to. The other class came and joined us. So we had 80 students and all of them were um, hungry and visibly malnourished. So you can tell when kids are not getting enough food, they've got their heads resting on the table um, at the end of the interviews, I did some games with them and they, it doesn't quite, well, you can see one kid uh, on the right-hand side with his head on the table, but they were, they were exhausted. So, um, so these kids were living on cabbages and uh, bush food, whatever they could get. The teacher let them come and go actually from the, from the schools. Um, so they'd either go home because they were sick with diarrhea from eating the wrong thing, or they'd go into the, the bush looking for food. Um, so we, um, obviously, I, I sort of did the photos and the videos while James did the interviews. Um, but he basically said, tell us some stories about the drought. And every uh, kid had a story. Um, so, for example, they would try to steal some sweet potato from a, from a neighbor's yard and, the, and they'd get beaten up for it. But these are little seven, eight-year-old kids. 
Um, very few of them had had any food um, recently. Um, so it was a, yeah, it was a pretty sad situation, obviously. Um, this is a, a young boy who is eight years old. Um, he was abandoned by his parents and during a fight over food, his father chopped his mother's hand off. And you can see in his hand is his lunch, which is just a small bit of uh, greens. Um, and he's, only, he's one of the few students that had food on that day. And we have um, videos of all of these interviews as well. Um, there's a nine-year-old girl who was abandoned by her parents. She has no food all day and she lives with her aunt who has five other children and she had some boiled choco leaves for breakfast. And I might um, show a video now if, if we can do that. Hopefully the sound works. Um, so it's a video of a young boy um, who's um, eight years old and the, uh, actually I'll read, let's see if the sound works before we play. Oh yeah, let's, let's pause it. For a Thanks, I can start it if you want. Um, so we don't have it subtitled and I don't know how many of you speak Huli here. Um, not many. Um, so I'll briefly read uh, a transcript before I play it, but you'll, you'll get the sense. I, when I was filming this, I knew something was happening without, um, without actually understanding it. So uh, James says to him, please tell me your name and what happened. Um, and the young boy says that his parents had a fight over food and his mother murdered his father. Um, and his mother then moved to Porgara and that he lives on his own. Um, and then he says she, um, she murdered him during the time of the food shortage. And James says, oh, so your father's dead? And he says, yes, she was murdered. And my mum's in Porgra now. And you can hear James sort of, sort of struggling with it. Um, and he said, did this happen during the drought? And he says, yes. And he said, why were they fighting? And he said, they were angry and hungry and she murdered him. And then James says, where are you living now? And the boy says, um, his father has an older sister and that's who he lives with. Peace. I don't know. I 
thank you all three. Um, would you like to move to the table and uh, for a Q&A? Is that okay? Are you happy to come up the front? Um, <clears throat> I wonder if this is so hard to turn off as it was to turn on. That would be really upsetting, wouldn't it, to... It's not clear what happened. 20 million kings have gotten the ocean, but it's not clear what happened. 
The other thing that Papua New Government said to um, to the MPs is that you can use your so-called district development funds, also known as the slush fund. If you want to, you can divert your money and put that into it. Some did. Some people, not everyone. Almost everyone, I mean, my Papua New colleagues here have a lot more story than us, but basically everyone had nine in 2017. They're all looking at the election. And so here's the situation. You're in a, you're in a district which is an electorate. You've got 5,000 people doing it really tough, really tough down south of it, but you've got to fly stuff in there. And you can only take 1,000 kilos at a time and it's going to cost you tens of thousands of kilos of that charter. Alternatively, you can give out rice on the road to the people who are going to support you and there's 55,000 people there. What are you going to do? You give it to 55,000. So that's what happened. All over the place, everywhere. So the, the district development money did not go to the people who needed it, who were remote. The 25 million, we know 5 million, we don't know what happened the other 20 million. But the money that bought the rice that ultimately um, saved a lot of people and did a lot of good things, that was UN money. That UN money came from European Union, from Japan and the US. The US put in 3 million US dollars, Japan put it, was, I can't remember, it was 3 million, 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 and the European Union put it in. There was also 600,000 euros, but that was for icing on a birthday cake. What I mean by that, the government had fed the people with rice, therefore the, a couple of the major NGOs were allowed to use that 600,000 euros to go and buy the tin fish on the basis that six, three months early, four months early, you had your rice, now you have the tin fish, that's your people. So it's fairly meaningless. But the serious stuff, some of the churches did good stuff. My council here is with the Uniting World today. Um, Uniting World raised some money, I think about $140,000 from memory, Aussie dollars. Uh, not a lot. Um, people like Sally, you kept, you kept that. Um, you and your mates kept the clinic going, Chris and his mates up at Mogaloo. Small amounts of money, but pretty, very small amounts of money. You keep, you keep the um, you keep the boat there, Chris and his wife and family who are uh, running the clinic and that kept the clinic going. Um, the Catholic system, Caritas Australia, Catholic New Zealand, Caritas New Zealand put money into, Caritas Australia's got quite a big office in Papua New Guinea. Caritas Papua New has got a small office. They went to the Catholic areas, all the churches tend to go to that. The areas where they're strongest, which is where they're, you know, not the same. You only belong to our flock. You only give it to Catholics and not Adventists, but they do go where they you know, where the networks are, where they have accommodation, which is understandable. And they focused on disabled people. So the churches did good work and small stuff, the big stuff is for the UN. You saw Sally's last slide. Um, I was um, aware that Oil Search, um, Oil Search Foundation had quite a, a, <clears throat> a program of um, aid delivery last year, and I was, I, mean, I was trying to find out exactly what they were doing, but they just kept giving me the giving me the runaround. Did you have any idea the extent of their help, and if any others sort of profiting from Highlands resources like Barrett Gold or Axel Mobile um, had their own programs? Yeah, look, look, um, Exxon did not, is my understanding. 
Um, I think oil surface gave out some relatively small amounts. I'm not sure it was mainly near um, PPL7 from memory, I think. I think I might have that wrong, but I think it was fairly small. That's my understanding. I wasn't engaged. They were a very minor actor. Um, and the next one was a, an even lesser actor. Um, the really big actor was the OTT Development Foundation. They really came up to the, to the plate well. I mean, they worked with work you, Sally, and we took that. that, that yeah, that, that's fine. Yeah. yeah, as far as some of those other actors, I believe there may have been small amounts of aid given close to where their bases are. Um, I don't know too much about it. Octeti Development Foundation certainly supplied all of the rice that we distributed, um, and they were prepared to go further afield. In fact, we went right across towards some of the other mining operations um, into their territory, if you like, uh, to make sure that those people were looked after because nothing had been done. That being said, they should be involved because many of them are in, for example, where I was working out in the Nomad LLG, these people are up in the mountains above this. You know, they're impacted by the uh, river pollutions and other things, not on the Fly River, but in other places. So, you know, they should be involved. But um, we didn't see a real lot of involvement. Um, <coughs> I was actually going to ask about Octavi. Um, what is its role in the society? Because it's, it's a mine that was nationalised, I think, uh, uh, a number of years ago. From, from, uh, what, what role do they play in society? How do they, uh, why have they got responsibility to do this? And Octavi was kicked off in '94. To put it crudely, the ship went south, the money went north. If you're not speaking person, you can benefit all sorts of things. Vast amounts, extraordinary amounts of material went down the Ock River and into the fly. Did vast amount of damage and still does. It's got worse as I've gone down the acid rock. After Slater and Gordon had that man holding up the dead fish, never mind the fact it's actually a long way away, it was on the television, and that's what matters, they changed their program. Octi then went a lot wider. They went all the way down to the mouth of the fly at Kiwi, up and down. So they operate in the west, not only so. Up to the drought, you had, you've got the Octeti Development Foundation, you've got PNG Sustainable, and you've got the actual mine themselves all doing good things in the western part of the province, up near the Indonesian border. The eastern part of the province where Sally is, and towards the south, people don't get anything. My colleague Matt Cano and I did a 250 kilometre traverse in 2013, 2014, more in the east. We started um, east of Taboo and we ended up at uh, Lake Kudabu following a new pipeline. And, and Matt had worked in that province um, through PNG Sustainable. He was shocked by the lack of development. So good things were happening up to 2015. In 2015, the, the national government, the Papua Guinea government, nationalised the mine. They said to everyone, go back to the village, off you go. A very different response from what happened in 97. In 97, they kept people on salary. They didn't chase them back to the village, where not only would they not have food, but the village people were short of food themselves, particularly going into the mountains up to Telephone and Oxitmen and Tekken in those areas. So in, in 2015, they said, bugger you go. And people went home, they went back and said, guess what, we're home. And said, well, guess what, you haven't helped us for a long time. And guess what, you're on your own now because we're doing it tough. So that caused a lot of stress back in the home areas. They convert, the government converted the mine into fly and fly out. Um, they couldn't get diesel up the fuel, uh, 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 up the, um, up the um, river, um, up to Kiunga uh, until the rain came. I guess November, maybe in October, and the river started to open up. Yeah, it was a big bar just down below Kiunga. 
and they could get the, the, um, get the, the barges up. The Docteddy Development Foundation, headed up by Ian Middleton, the Middleton's a very well established um, family. Ian Middleton's grandparent, grandparents were um, planters on Karkar Island, and his dad and his uncle family, family's been there for a long time, BNG. They did a superb job and working, they provided almost all the rice in Western Province, and as Sally just said, even spilling over into the neighbourhood provinces, into the areas very close to um, where Oil Search works and where Exxon works in their oil and gas fields. So through that foundation, they did a superb work. So that, they've got a lot of responsibility, in this case, to the whole province. So funny things happen, strange things happen, like that, because so, their mine, their mine, their world is Kionga to Tabubal, where the highway is, so they brought all the food to Kiunga. It's more rational in some ways if you're working east of the province, you bring it to Morrow. There's a road to a place called Morrow, that's where all searches base is. You can drive there from Hagen and Tari down to Morrow, and then it's a short chopper or light aircraft ride across the provincial border. But their mindset was, you know, the western part of the province, so that's how they brought it up up the Fly River. But look, that's a minor comment. Overall, the Octetti Development Foundation did a superb job because they understand it's about relationships and they understand they're there for a long haul. It took them a long time, it took them some many years to get there, but I understand that very clearly. There are companies operating in PNG that are very much bigger than Octetti Development, they don't understand that. But Octetti did learn their lesson. It took Slater and Gordon to get them there, but they learned the lesson. Off. I can just provide some additional info about your, your question. Um, Exxon provided the United Church and PNG 68,000 kina for replanting material, and Oil, uh, Oil Search Foundation were uh, very, very generous. They were basically putting um, uh, land cruisers. Um, transport assets at the disposal of the United Church in PNG for distribution of, of what food that they could procure. Thanks, Brian. Um, Mike's already suggested that you can't answer this question, but we'll just comment. <laughs> I'll make it anyway. We're here to learn some lessons, and one hopes that the Australian government might learn some lessons, although it's now a year since. Two years since this event happened, and I'm sure they're more concerned about other things. Um, but the I know from uh, first-hand comments and from talking to people in Port Moresby that many of the NGOs and the EU and uh, the United Nations were extremely frustrated with Australia's lack of response, and they were all scratching their heads and wondering why. Um, in 1997, uh, when the Sydney Morning Herald published a picture of a woman starving at Sarunki, uh, Minister Downer immediately got on the press and publicly asked the Prime Minister of Papua New Guinea if they needed help and uh, asked what he was doing. It turned out that he was doing nothing and so public Australia basically stepped in and said, well, we will come and help. Now, in 2015, Minister Bishop went to Inga province and we all waited for the statement to say that Australia was about to help. I can't remember exactly what she said, I've got the clippings, but I think what she said was, she'll be right, mate, everything's good, Prime Minister O'Neill's got it all under control, and he and his members of Parliament are distributing money all around the country, which we knew wasn't true. 
Why would she have done that? Would it have had anything to do with the Maas refugee camp? I think it almost certainly did have. Um, the other interesting difference between 97 and now is that the Australian uh, newspapers have really run into a massive amount of financial trouble and don't have representatives in uh, Papua New Guinea anymore. The person that went up to Inga and published the picture was based in Papua New Guinea. But I just would, and we've got some DFAT people with us today and one of them works in food security that would ask them, could they possibly go back and do a bit of a review about what happened and why it happened and what was the influence of the minister and was there a possible influence of uh, the refugee camp paralysing Australia's response to quite a serious situation right on that border. Did anyone on the panel want to make a comment about it? Take it as a comment. Right. Take it as a comment, but I'll just say all my time in and out of DFAT, I had never been to DFAT before the drought, I've never been there because I've been working for all sorts and Exxon for my sins since 2009. Um, but no one talked about Marmus. What they talked about, Papua New is independent, that's one thing. You had a Prime Minister saying, this is 40 years on, I've got to do it. And the biggest single thing, I think, was what happened, what Australia did in 97. As Bryant knows, there was a tussle between the military minister, the minister for Pacific Islands and the minister for foreign affairs, and the first assistant secretary's ministerial council do what ministerial councils do, which is to protect their minister and get publicity. And so there's lots of press. So everyone in Papua New Guinea thought about 97, most people in Australia believe that Australia saved Papua New Guinea. Australia bought 4.5% of the extra rice. But everyone believes Australia bought 120%. 18 years later, said Australia saved us then, really we've got to do it ourselves now. So I didn't hear any talk about money. I said a lot of talk about independence, about the government saying we can do it. The other context is everyone was now counting down for the 2017 election. I think they're probably bigger issues, and particularly the sense that Australia saved us once, we're going to do it ourselves now. Just, just a small point on that, um, as Mike says. Um, they might have been saying that in Port Moresby and within government circles. But out in the bush, they were saying, please tell Australian aid to help us. So, you know, it's a, it's it's one story in the in the towns and in the political circles. It's quite another story out in the bush. Uh, and the people are very appreciative of um, Australian aid uh, coming in and helping them out in this situation. So. They're not saying we've got to do it ourselves, they're just saying please help us and please tell us what, what we can do to get help. So. Uh, maybe I'll just kind of comment obliquely. I, I do work for DFAT and uh, it's a really tough uh, set of questions there. This is the good thing about having rigorous academic uh, <laughs> and journalistic exposure uh, and a free press and all that stuff. Um, uh, I, I guess all I'd add to the conversation is that in the, the reviews that were done in, internally of the response that were, you know, you know, did raise a lot of questions about how it was done. One of the real challenges you have in humanitarian response is that you can't trigger a humanitarian response without a request by, by a government to do it. So if the government legitimately felt that uh, it had the situation under control, there's very little that the international community can do, including Australia. We can't, you know, you can't force humanitarian assistance on another country. It's a, uh, I 
it's an accepted part of the system. So I think in terms of how um, how we respond to that situation, one of the things that's come up is how can we incorporate resilience into our development programming? How can we have a better profile of programs on the ground that can uh, put uh, communities in a better situation so they can respond themselves? And then potentially when, if the need arises, we could potentially scale up funding through a mechanism that's already in place. So that's the kind of thinking that's going on at the moment about how what a sensible way would be to respond. Part of the challenge of that is a, is a real lack of data. So we're happy to be able to draw on the immense amounts of data that, um, that, that Bryant and, um, and Mike have and others in, in the ANU. It's an immense resource that we'd like to draw on the work of NGOs on the ground. I don't think so far has been focused enough on resilience and nutrition. So these are the kinds of questions that we're trying to deal with. We don't have a, a silver bullet, but we're certainly scratching our heads and trying to work out what the right kind of response is. So I should, I should uh, add something, and that is that Australia did respond, but they did it uh, under the table, so to speak. They funded defence forces in Papua New Guinea and, and other... Um, well, not, well, they certainly funded the defence force to help out with transport and sort of thing, and didn't make that official. And they didn't want it on the table. But the point made that they weren't asked by the Papua New Guinea Prime Minister is a very good one. I think the, the question about PNG and the last systems, <clears throat> in most places that I've worked in, it's normal that the government doesn't want you to assist. And I guess it's the emergencies are not so frequent in places like PNG, but in other places where they are frequent, um, you have a donor working group, might be chaired by <coughs> Bank, USA, groups or somewhere, and it's a constant tension between the government and the donor community to get humanitarian access. And that phrase, humanitarian access, is used every day of the week in those places. So maybe it's also that, uh, that Australia's not um, it's just not used to that dynamic and maybe a bit afraid of it as well. Uh, but after all, things settle down in these countries and people get used to it. The only working group that was pushing the boundaries of humanitarian access. Can I uh, just ask a follow up? Uh, so, is there any intention or plan to have a donor working group in PNG for such emergencies that you know of? Not Would anyone have a comment on that or not? Okay. It's a food security group. Yeah. Okay. This is ambassador level. This is a... right. yeah. um, just wondering, because uh, seems like the 97-98 response cast a very long shadow over the response of last year. Um, what do you think the government's lessons learned would be from their response? Um, and if there is another El Nino event in the near future, um, I guess what would be the lessons learned? Do you expect that the government would have exactly the same response again? Um, and how would we as humanitarians best approach that, in your opinion? Which government? Papua New Guinea. So a couple of points. Um, there's an election on. We don't know whether there's a change of government. Um, I can't predict what would happen if there's the same government there. Um, 
would add, though, that the people who push the boundary, the person who pushed the boundary to the absolute limit and stepped back and pushed against a bloke called Roy Trevetti, the head of UNDP, he behaved in a very non-UN way. Did not did not behave like an international public servant, being very polite. He pushed and pushed and stepped back. He was supported by myself, supported by a bloke called Jared Nunn. Um, but but it was Trevetti that pushed it. I said, okay, if you didn't ask for it, well, we're saying people are bloody dying, and it's not good enough, mate. We went straight to the Prime Minister. That's what I spent Easter 2016 up and down. These guys have been on the phone to me almost in tears, and you know, I was pretty upset myself. I saw some of the stuff now. And so Trevetti and Nin was on the phone to me, the Singaporean work, and email, because I'm the, sort of got the big national overview of the right knows the country, and going to the PM. And when the Prime Minister did not say no, that's when you guys came in, that's when World Food could start to move. But this was then April 16, and um, bad things have been happening since December, since December um, 15, okay, after the rain started, and bad, really bad things started. So the UN did push the system, it depended on one man, it depended on Trevetti. So the system you, 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 you talk about, Bernard, is, is not dissimilar. In terms of what could happen in the future, I can't predict it. Just, just on that, um, you know, there's a lot of cultural and other uh, factors at play here. You know, what a big man in Papua New Guinea can provide and what he can't, uh, embarrassment, having to ask for help and things like that, you know. And so I think for the future, the, the biggest response must be, as you say, in, in, you know, building capacity for the people to look after themselves in these situations. I dread to think if we have another similar situation and having to go in again, you know, from a humanitarian perspective, you know, so I think we really have to focus on making a difference in, you know, in agriculture and in education and other things so that the people can do a lot of it themselves. They can, they're capable, um, it's just equipping them to, to move forward in that way. Um, hi. Um, I work at Board Mission Australia and we are increasingly moving into disaster risk reduction um, as part of our core programming in the Pacific and in other places. Just wondering, related to your point, did you see any evidence on the ground of DRR programs working? Um, I know that you mentioned that, um, that development progress hadn't mattered and had made an impact, but I was just wondering what Western half is run by Indonesia, eastern half is an independent country. Back in 97, when I was being very critical of Ozo, I don't know why people say that, but I reckon I was. A colleague of mine that's wise, Chris Ballard, he said to me, Mike, you've been really critical of Ozo and what Australia's done in PNG, but step back. Where I work in Western New Guinea in, in Papua, the Rian things are really bad. A lot more people died in Western New Guinea than in Eastern New Guinea in 97, even though the drought was not as bad. Why? This is like a development. <coughs> Now that's changed now in the Lowlands, particularly at Moralke, 
I talk about Moorhead before, which is where Indonesia, Australia, probably any meat people went from Moorhead to Morauke, selling deer antlers and what have you. But up in the highlands and Jaya and the mountains of West New Guinea, things are really grim. There's a good point from my colleague Chris. He said, look at the long picture. This is our third presentation today. Our first one was a DFAT. One of the things I put up there was showing under five mortality over half a century. What happens, I haven't put it up here, it drops very rapidly. Our first hard day was 1961. In the first half of that half century comes down really rapidly from 200 per annum down to 200 kids dead and every thousand down to about 50. Still high by any standard. That happens in the first 25 years, from the 60s and the 70s to mid 80s. From mid 80s to the present, depends how you interpret the data, it creeps down ever so slowly, it's not much less. So in the first half of that period, the 50s, which is before the start of set, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, up to independence, company here for the first decade of independence, up to mid 80s, things are getting better. All the parameters are moving in the right direction. From them, they, they get somewhat better. So there's two experiments. One is Papua New Guinea before 1985 and since 85. The other one is the island split in two. In terms of particular locations, people, for example, in Chimbu, in South Chimbu, they did it very tough. They sold a few onions, sold a few villains, whatever. Most people got by, not everyone, but most people got through where there's roads. Why did the Australians build the roads in the Chimbu, in the Chimbu province and not in Western province? Do they like Chimbu's more? No. Western province got a density of one or two people square kilometre. Chimbu then had a density of 50 or 60, now it's 150. Australians put the roads where the people were. It's not, even with the swamps. It's really, really rugged in the highlands of Australians in the 50s and 60s when the roads were built. Most of Papua New Guinea's roads were built before <coughs> 1978. The only roads built since then have been a few mining roads, like from Kimberley to the Burble. So where you've got roads and people can buy the way out of trouble can look after themselves. You've got a few bob in your pocket, you've got a few tina in your, in your billum, you can buy money. And some of the users, one's got a book, you've got the booklet with you, yeah. The little book that we all put out, our colleague Matt Carroll said, let's do a book, let's do a book on this, I've grown, but we did it. Um, and one of the images that we've got in that is um, the, the two ladies that I <laughs> photographed, I took a 97 of, um, there's a whole lot of photographs, it's all on the web, we've got some student copies. One of the images in that is a couple of ladies, one's carrying um, a bag of Australian rice and a flower. And then that took place place called um, Chilala in Chindu province. The other aspect of resilience is getting it out of the hands of incompetent government. So in this case, the Australian government gave a million Aussie dollars, two million China, not a trivial sum of money, to the National Agricultural Research Institute to propagate the key things. The key things are corn, or it's maize sometimes, sweet potato and potato for high altitude, that's the crops. They took the million dollars, said thank you very much, and used it for whatever. None of that went into seed. Now, if you can't trust the government institutions to take out, who can you trust? Well, the best thing is to have lots and lots of little people, lots of little businesses running nurseries, as you've got for now in the highlands of Cyprus, for example. You didn't have that when I lived in the highlands in the 70s or 80s. Now there's nurseries everywhere. And you can come along and say to those people, you've got a bit of a business. If I give you fifty or $100,000, will you crank it up? Yeah, sure. You've got irrigation and you crank it up and they sell it and you move in the commercial world. And even if that business crashes, you've got time for those businesses. That's your long-term resilience. So it's not just the resilience of the villagers, it's the resilience of the business people, <coughs> the commercial sector. And, and, and that, that's a long-term, given that government at every level is so weak in a virtually non-existent state, a weak state and getting weaker. Yeah, and that's where organisations like World Vision are trying to do more and more building 
smallholder farmers and capacities, micro-businesses. I guess the question for us is always, in times of crisis, does it work? Like, do you see signs of that resilience actually achieving sustained impact or...? Well, the answer is yes. Can I, sorry, can I just quickly add that apart from uh, what, apart from the ongoing work that NGOs do, the other advantage is, um, this is a plug for Care International particularly, is that um, having their presence there, when, when there's a need for a scale-up for food distribution, you've got capacity there. So they know the local environment, but they also know how to deal with these complicated UN donor requirements for acquitting and all this stuff that I don't understand. So. Um, had care not been around in the highlands, um, the first World Food Program food distribution couldn't have happened. It would have happened, but it might have been a few months late. It would have been messier. There probably would have been, you know, I don't know. There was there was no one on the ground who could partner. So suddenly $4 million came in and there was no one in the country that could actually handle that. So this is another advantage. And unfortunately, um, CARE has lost a lot of funding uh, recently. Um, but also World Vision, I mean, they were doing various assessments, Oxfam and others. So having them on the ground all across the country, they're not everywhere, but then you can go to them and get, get quick reports. So there's, there's other advantages to having them there. That's something I've learned through the drought is the, I, I wouldn't have been a big fan maybe of NGOs just because of, you know, there's a lot said about them, but they, they do a really good job in PNG, I think. I'll just tell you a quick story about your organisation. Oh, I've worked a lot for World Vision. They're a great mob, love them. I'm a great mob. <laughs> they work in Madang Province, as you know, in Bougainville. They work with um, sex workers and others in Morsley. They don't work in the Highlands. In the drought, no one was working in Southern Highlands and Heller for a very good reason. It is really tough. Our colleague, um, James Kamengi, just put the Facebook thing up the other day. Seven people murdered in the last week. Oh, by the way, when I walked out, someone had to go up with me with a shotgun. I ducked and they didn't get kill me either. Uh, it is a really, really rough place where James works. Anyway, World Vision, that the other NGO said, oh, there seems to be a bit of a gap in the market up in Heller and Southern Ireland. Why don't you go there? I said, yeah, we can do that. And I came back and, and Brendan and I interviewed them when we on the UNDP job in January this year. And I said, my goodness, those places, I can see why the other NGOs don't work for there. They are hard work. So I think they ran back to the day in Bougainville. Can you say something to that too? Sorry. Um, just from my perspective, we see very little as far as um, NGO involvement in the area of Western problems where I live. Uh, however, we have seen some World Vision projects in the past, including, I believe it was World Vision after the 97 drought um, in some uh, garden work, and um, they sent some tools and things like that. One problem, I guess, with any of this sort of um, aid is to remember that you're sending it to people where culturally they just don't necessarily operate the way we do and so education has to be a massive part not just a couple of adults like at school level uh, has to be a massive part of building this so that it can make a cultural change so that people uh, know how to eat differently they know what's good you know that it's a really basic change if you just go in and provide some things and say do it this way chances are after a year or two you won't see uh, you know, you won't see the results anymore. So long term, it has to be education and, and real change in the, in the developments. And I just wanted to come back to the issue of the government of Papua New Guinea and maybe just throw them out as comments rather than questions. Um, 
the sort of two things that are striking me as you're talking, a major change between the two um, drought, 97 and 2015, would have most certainly been a shift towards the DSIP and the entire political economy of service delivery in the country. So I'm just throwing that out as a something that looking forward for future responses, this is probably going to be an area that really needs to be understood, um, especially with the introduction of the district development authorities. Could you spell out ASIP? Um, district Support Improvement Program, Mike? Is that what you like to? I call it the slash Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Is that clear? Is that yeah, so I think that's changed the political economy of service delivery. And there's a really nice two-page in-brief written by um, Colin Wiltshire and Tiago Opperman. I'm an SSGM in-brief. That's worth looking at in terms of that process. Um, the other issue which relates to it is, again, some of this national level, um, the actors at the national level. And I worked with the UN for over 10 years in Port Moresby in this space. Definitely there are donor coordinating groups and development partner coordinating groups happening all over the place at the national level. This is a really active arena. Something strikes me that something happened in this particular drought and why is it remarkable to, that Roy Trevetti um, went to the Prime Minister for action to be taken because Traditionally, the UN usually moves forward quite fast in terms of being a neutral player in a political space. So again, just maybe for your PhD research, just looking into what's happening here, is there a change in dynamic in terms of how the UN relates to the government that may have influenced that? Yeah, I'd like to throw in another question on top of Michelle's one. I find it really striking that the Australian government couldn't pressure the PNG government to ask for assistance because in exactly the same period we're talking about, the Australian government had no trouble with Vanuatu or Fiji. And Fiji-Australia relations are much more tense than Australia-PNG relations. And yet no sooner did you have a cyclone in both of those countries than the Australians were immediately in, in uh, presence of, uh, in helping in the countries. So I think there might be an interesting question to ask there, why was it possible in those two cases, not in the case of PNG. Because they're invited. Yeah, I'm saying, well, you can always get an invitation. And an invitation is to give aid are, are about as easy as you can possibly get. Why didn't, press, why didn't the Australian government succeed in pressing PNG? That may relate back to Brian's question. Yes, I think sure. it does. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to square the circle. Um, I think we'll try and wrap it up in the next few minutes, and there should be tea and coffee outside. So. Thank you. Um, I've got, I suppose, three concerns just listening to what we've discussed, and thank you very much for the presentations. And three concerns around uh, if, and or not if, when this happens again. And I think the first concern um, goes to some of the points around um, the roles of external agencies. I mean, I, I think, yes, there are six very large events that we've had um, over the past 50, 60 years. Um, but I think climate change will mean that we get these more frequently and more and more severely. So I think the question is, this will happen again. Uh, and I think the trend that I felt was very strong over the last two years in PNG is that we're seeing similar issues to how the government has responded mm -hmm. to the PNG government has responded to the drought. So what you see perhaps in say Ethiopia or parts of East Africa where you have 
massive needs, but perhaps an unwillingness to uh, admit that those needs are there and that there are issues that need to be addressed. And, and so we're going to have this problem again. Um, and I think uh, I'm not quite sure yet how how we can deal with this, but I think this is going to be a big issue, and it's a big issue for all agencies that are wishing to deal with with those humanitarian impacts and for, for large-scale donors. And so that's that's one very significant concern that I have, and I don't see necessarily how the lessons going forward from this perhaps will uh, inform how we deal with that issue again, because I think that will be a similar issue to politicisation of, of some of this. The second concern is one around modalities of aid um, that, uh, and, and instruments that we actually have around us. So, uh, you know, and again, this is learning from, from global experience, even in <coughs> West Africa, where you have a lot of these uh, protracted crises that, that run out, you know, having the flexibilities in donor funding, crisis modifier type arrangements, which allow you to switch from a project that's doing community capacity building and switch as the situation changes to deal with perhaps greater humanitarian impacts and acknowledging the fact that it is far cheaper to deal with these impacts early on than it is to be dealing with response. By the time you're still talking about putting bags of rice on small sesame to get to small isolated locations, the costs of response are massive compared to uh, the types of interventions you can have at a community level where you're providing advice around how to actually prepare for some of these impacts. Um, and I think there, there is a, I think there was a, a genuine uh, a struggle across all donors in PNG around how best to uh, respond to the crisis that was identified back in September, October 2015, but large scale funding only actually flowed in mid 2016. Uh, often way after um, people were, were already doing it very tough. And I think that the final concern that I have that I don't have a, I don't see yet how we can deal with is that the, gr the growing decentralization of, of disaster management in government in PNG. What I think I've seen over the last 10 years is actually a, a, an erosion of capacity at the provincial, at the district, at the LNG level and at the water level in terms of ability to manage large-scale response activities and also to support communities in, in, in um, uh, preparedness and, and risk reduction activities. And I think that's a real gap. Um, and I think, you know, if this happens again um, and the government's response is to say, well, it's up to the provinces and the provinces' response says it's up to the districts, then we're going to end up with a very similar situation. So those are three really big key issues for me that I don't necessarily see key uh, ways forward, um, and I suppose there's questions as much as to say. I think we might leave that as the last question slash statement. Um, would anyone like to respond or... Mm -hmm. that? Oh, that's all right. I really <coughs> agree with you, Stefan, and um, it's one frustrating thing about doing these seminars is that um, because we've worked so intimately with the subject, we want to sort of impart what we've learned. Um, in some ways, I'm too close to it. Ask me in a few years if I ever get through a PhD, I might have reflected somehow. And I mean, Bernard's got great comments, and others in the UN system. You can compare this and see how it's worked elsewhere, has it improved? Um, but yeah, in terms of lessons that address those three concerns, I, yeah, I don't, I agree. I have the same concerns. I don't have very much hopeful to offer, really. Um, the, I mean, except for some of the NGO work that does attempt to raise capacity at provincial district levels around <coughs> disaster management, cash cropping. I mean, there's, there's a lot of good stuff happening at the community and subnational levels. That's a drop in the ocean. Um, as to your other points, I mean, um, 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, so I agree with you. That's all I can say. Not very helpful. Is anyone else in the panel? Tell um, As far as capacity on in a community level and for the ward councillors, uh, district and LLG level, I think that they do often have the capacity, or we certainly saw it in this case, but then further up the chain, the story just got lost, you know, as you're saying. And so, you know, there needs to be some uh, hard work done on recognising the job that those people are doing and making sure that the story gets through. Um, because that's why they were so so desperate, in, in my case anyway, they just said, no one's listening, you know, can you tell the story? So they had done a great job. They'd done their reports. You know, they put together all the work. They assisted with all of the data, um, but just getting that moving forward is really difficult. So. I think on that note, um, we might uh, draw a close to today's event. Um, I'd like to thank Sally, Mike, and Brendan for coming along and presenting. Um, you have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea, the Pacific and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter to get all the latest updates, or you can connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening. <laughs>